Welcome back to Seattle Morning News. I am Mike Lewis in for Dave Ross. We are joined now by CBS Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent and Moderator of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan. Margaret, good morning. Good morning. So we'll get right into it. Israel and Gaza. What's the latest on the U.S. efforts to free hostages in Gaza? Well, President Biden has uh, deployed the CIA director to meet with the head of Israeli intelligence, the Qatari prime minister, Egypt's intelligence minister, all to try to press for a breakthrough that would allow for a hostage release in coordination with the release of Palestinian prisoners from Israeli detention centers and a pause in the violence. Perhaps most critically, that last element is uh, really difficult to hammer out in terms of the length of a cessation of violence, for example, and whether it could perhaps lead to an end to the war. That lack of definition of what would end this war has been an ongoing problem. Yesterday, Prime Minister Netanyahu released a fairly vague plan for what that day after would look like, far less detailed from what, for example, the Biden administration has put forward in trying to suggest a way to end the fighting and recreate a peaceful structure uh, between Israelis and, and Palestinians. So we will talk to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in an exclusive interview about all of this on Sunday. There are still at least six Americans believed to be held hostage by Hamas. So what specifically are you going to be asking him about then? Well, we will be asking about this this plan that I've, I've read that CBS obtained and translated from Hebrew in terms of trying to nail down what that day after looks like. There's no definition of success. U.S. intelligence has said that the Israeli military has only killed about 30 percent of Hamas leadership. So if you're talking about the destruction of Hamas, how do you define that? Is it the leader of Hamas? Is it all of its leadership? Right. That's not been successful. How long does this war go on for? Because it is causing at this pro- at this point uh, such concern for U.S. national security interests in the region and the very delicate balance of power. Uh, Jordan, Egypt, countries that have peace treaties with Israel are really saying this is now so brutal that it is going to feed into extremism. There needs to be a halt to the fighting, and there is no agreement to date on that. All right. Switching tracks to Russia and Ukraine. What are the details of the new U.S. sanctions on Russia from President Biden? Well, we know at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern time, the White House will release its detailed fact sheet. What I can tell you at this point is that it's more than 500 sanctions. Sounds like a big round number. A lot of it is targeting the more... um, more specifically, some of the war machinery here, manufacturers of uh, weapons and um, metalwork that can be used in weaponry. But but let's be clear, we are two years into this extremely brutal war in Ukraine launched by Russia, and Russia has been able to find willing partners to evade the existing sanctions. They have purchased ammunition from North Korea, drones from Iran. They have also been able to trade with China in terms of bringing in you know, food and other things uh, for their population. So the sanctions uh, regime has complicated Russian life. It has not stopped the war. So how does the death of Alexei Navalny factor into all of this? Well, you know, President Biden has pointed to the death of of Alexei Navalny. And by the way, he met out, as you know, in in California with Navalny's widow and daughter. Um, He has pointed to that as another reason for these sanctions coming down today. But uh, Russia watchers like Fiona Hill, who will be my guest Sunday, former intel analyst and Putin biographer, 
would argue that this shows how emboldened Vladimir Putin feels at this moment in time that he would kill his main political opponent, who, by the way, was already in a Russian penal colony, exactly. so not not running for office anytime soon, uh, but looking across the, the the ocean at the United States at a time when it is unclear whether the U.S. Congress will ultimately approve the billions of dollars of uh, weapons and uh, financial aid that Ukraine says it desperately needs. And the White House says just this past week, a battlefield victory was handed to Russia in eastern Ukraine because of a shortage of weaponry. So uh, it paints a picture for Vladimir Putin uh, that perhaps he can outlast the West or the United States. We will talk to Ukraine's ambassador to the United States about this Sunday as well. And finally, South Carolina has, is having a primary. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we've got one key candidate in this who is at a at a you know, pivot point in her candidacy. Uh, Tell us what you know about uh, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, who was the governor of that state, who, you know, really prides herself on being able to upend the establishment, uh, has acknowledged that for her, victory doesn't necessarily mean winning this primary. It simply means outperforming how she did in earlier state primaries to be able to continue to last, to uh, perhaps be, for lack of a better term, an alternative or backup plan to Donald Trump because of this uncertainty um, on a number of things, including his advanced age and including his legal problems. Uh, Nikki Haley has zeroed in on Donald Trump's age, uh, as well as Joe Biden's age, by the way, right. uh, as reasons why she thinks a new generation needs to be ushered in. So remember, we see the party conventions in the summertime. That's when the uh, the proceedings will be made official. And Donald Trump is presumed to be the party nominee. Joe Biden is, too, for the Democrats. Uh, and by the way, the 27th out in Michigan, we will see the Democratic primary right, right. <laughs> and uh, a key gauge potentially of Democratic upset with Joe Biden. Debbie Dingell, Republican Congress, or excuse me, Democratic Congresswoman from Michigan will be with us to talk about that. There is an effort underway to boycott Joe Biden because of his position on Gaza. That was CBS Chief Foreign Foreign Affairs Correspondent and Moderator of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan. Margaret, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Our resident historian, Felix Bunnell, joins us uh, for all over the map. A quick look at the stories behind local places and things. This week, Mayor Cassie Franklin of Everett has decided to demolish the historic 1921 gazebo at Clark Park. But not everyone is happy about the decision or how it was made. Hey, good morning. Yeah, Clark Park is a block west of Broadway in the north part of downtown Everett in a neighborhood they call Bayside. It, the park dates to 1894, which and it makes it the city oldest, city's oldest park. The gazebo, or bandstand, was built in 1921. It's been host to hundreds of events over the years. In the recent past, it was fenced off to keep people out, but it's open now. It does need to have some deferred maintenance addressed, like you'd expect any 103-year-old structure to need, but it's not falling down. Clark Park itself looks well-maintained, but it also needs some long-term TLC. Everyone agrees it needs to um, get upgraded in order to, what they call, activate the space, you know, get more daily users there. There were unhoused people there when I visited yesterday afternoon, including sitting in the gazebo, but it was quiet and there were other park users there, too. Now, Simone Tarver is public information officer for the city of Everett. She says Mayor Cassie Franklin decided to, do- to demolish the gazebo earlier this month. The decision was came to with the parks department and with the community after seeing a lot of challenges within that park over the years. Not that necessarily removing this gazebo is going to change the entire situation or solve all of the problems, but 
it is going to be a step in the direction that we're hoping to go in reactivating that park space and promoting more positive use by adding that dog park. So Mayor Franklin believes replacing the gazebo with a dog park will address the safety concerns at Clark Park. However, as far as I can tell, there really wasn't a public process to inform the mayor's decision. It looks like Everett Parks Department uh, met with a committee of the Bayside Neighborhood Association. That's the official group of neighbors who advise the city. And they came up with the idea to demolish last summer. The Parks Department moved forward with the demolition plan. They didn't tell the general public, but late last year, they did ask the Bayside Neighborhood Association to write a letter of support. And the letter said things like this, quote, As a neighborhood, we feel the gazebo has become a draw for drug use, drug sales, violence, and other nefarious activities. We would like to see the, the gazebo moved out of the park. We realize this will not solve all the issues at Clark Park, but it will solve the problems with the gazebo in the park. Okay, so when the mayor's decision to demolish it became public earlier this month by Facebook, a lot of history and historic preservation people in Everett who'd been left out of the process were understandably upset. Andrea Tucker doesn't live in the Bayside neighborhood, but she works in real estate, and she's the board chair of Historic Everett, a nonprofit preservation group. She says the problems at Clark Park won't be solved by tearing down the gazebo. The problems stem from cuts to the city of Everett Park's budget and to wider societal problems around housing shortages and drug use. The fact is, it's not the gazebo's fault. (laughs) The issue has nothing to do with this structure that sits here. Now, John Phillips is vice chair of the Bayside Neighborhood Association. That's a group that sent that letter blaming the gazebo and supporting its demolition. He's been volunteering at Clark Park for years. He runs a cool series of annual events like the Christmas Carol sing-along in the gazebo. He loves the park. He loves the gazebo, but he's clearly frustrated by the deferred maintenance. Like, for example, the electrical outlet in the gazebo failed. They had to bring in a generator, and it's hard to sing Christmas carols over <laughs> yeah, the hum of a generator. Right. Now, John Phillips was surprised by the strong reaction from people outside the neighborhood to the news about the mayor's decision to demolish, but he possibly sees a silver lining. If that's what it takes to say, hey, it's it's either we're going to remove it or you need to figure out how to save it, then maybe this was the impetus to get everybody involved and try to raise the funds and put the pressure on to to fix the gazebo and, and keep it at the park. So there might still be time for a community-wide effort, not just those Bayside neighbors, but citywide to work with the city and form some kind of a task force to raise money for the gazebo, but also to address the issues at Clark Park more holistically and for the long term, rather than just tear down a gazebo because homeless people take shelter in it. It all seems a little hasty. Now, both John Phillips from the neighborhood and Andrea Tucker from Historic Everett, they're each in favor of doing some kind of bigger meeting to talk about the issues and explore solutions, maybe come up with a task force. As for the city's view on a broader community effort to save the gazebo, spokesperson uh, Simone Tarver was noncommittal. Without putting that directly to the mayor or to another decision maker within the city, I wouldn't be able to advise one way or the other. Seems like there's potential for a great solution if everyone could just kind of get together and actually talk about it and actually right. do it publicly like you should do with publicly owned structures. Um, there's a big meeting next Tuesday of the Everett Historical Commission. It'll be the first time this issue will be discussed publicly and really kind of debated. So that should be a big night on Tuesday in Everett. One quick question, Felix. So how architecturally significant, other than its age, how architecturally significant is the gazebo? I mean, is this something that is unusual for the area or something that is worth actually It represents perfectly the 1920s as Everett was urbanizing and people needed city parks to gather and have Mm -hmm. places where they could actually sell, despite the fact we were becoming industrialized and on streetcars and cars and everything, you could still get together in the park. This is where people gathered. It's symbolic of that neighborhood. Is it some special architect? Not exactly, but it's very valuable to that city, that park, and to the entire city's history. Okay, great. Thank you, Felix. Good morning and welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. I am Mike Lewis in for Dave Ross. We are joined by 710 Sports host Mike Salk. Mike, you are heading down to Peoria next week as the Mariners begin spring training. What's your favorite part of spring training? And let me guess, is optimism a component of that? It is, but I mean, the real answer is all of it. Right. Right. I mean, it's not just optimism. I 
growing up in the Northeast where winters are, you know, awful. And, right. and here they're different, but also kind of <laughs> awful, right? Right. It's not snow and freezing cold temperatures every day and wind, but it's rain and gray. It's helpful to see the sun. Right. And not just for my own personal glorification and, and happiness. Yeah. But also because it is a reminder that spring is coming and the better weather is coming and the summer is coming and baseball's coming and right. all of those things kind of work together. And so, I yes, optimism is absolutely a part of it. It's fun to, you know, know that all 30 teams tend to come into spring training with a feeling like if this goes right and that goes right and this goes right, maybe we can do such and such. And uh, the Mariners are one of those teams. They're not perfect, uh, along with a lot of the other teams in baseball. And it was a frustrating start, certainly, to this offseason after a frustrating ending to last season. Indeed. But you look at some of the moves they've made in the last six weeks, and while it may not have been enough to change the narrative, it, it may have changed some of the way this team will actually appear on the field this year. What do you mean? In what way? Yeah, so they made a couple of really big trades over the course of the last month and a half or so, uh, bringing in Jorge Polanco to play second base, trading for a pitcher named Gregory Santos, who is one of the better relievers stuff-wise in terms of baseball. And all of a sudden, this offseason that looked like a total disaster you start looking at it going, well, hold on a minute. You, you got a second baseman now, which you've been missing. And now you're adding back to the bullpen, which you had kind of taken away from. And Julio's coming back and looks like a top 10 player in baseball. And your starting rotation, you didn't have to change at all. And it might be the best in baseball. And all of a sudden, your team doesn't look so bad anymore, which is nice. Do you anticipate any more big moves? Or do you feel like this team is kind of set now for at least the first couple of months of the season? I don't know that I would anticipate a big move. Um, that doesn't mean there wouldn't be some moves around the margins. The one question mark is about a guy named Matt Chapman, who used to play for the A's. He's a third baseman. He's one of the best defensive third basemen in the game. And he used to be a pretty good hitter. He's only 30, so he shouldn't be done. But his last year left some questions as to that. But anyway, he's a free agent and he was expecting, I mean, he turned down four years, $100 million from right. the Blue Jays thinking he was going to get more on the open market the next year. And it has not gone that way at all. And so if it gets to a point where Chapman is available on a one year deal, yeah, uh, the, the Mariners, I think would probably be pretty interested in that. And so going into this season, how do you feel compared to how you felt going into last season? Well, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about that because I was <laughs> I was high man on the Mariners last year. I really thought last year's team right. was going to be great. Uh, obviously, they were not. Obviously, it didn't work that way. But again, the narrative and the reality tend to get twisted a little bit. I think if you if you only paid attention to the fan frustration at the end of last year, your feeling would be, oh, the Mariners stunk last year. Right. And the reality is they won 88 games, missed the playoffs by essentially a game. Right. And watched the team that beat them out by a game go on to win the World Series. So, yeah, it, right. it, it was a really frustrating year. And fan frustration makes sense and is absolutely right to be upset with the ownership, especially for not spending more and not doing what it needed to do to get the team over the top. Because they probably could have purchased that game they, somewhere, they right? probably could have. Right. On the other hand, if your star player, Julio Rodriguez, had had a slightly better year, if your you know stars in your rotation had pitched a little bit better in September... You know, the, the the season looks totally different and, all you know, maybe you're not having some of the same frustration. And so what should 
people expect again this year? I mean, it seems to me that the narrative has been the team starts off pretty good. Everyone gets excited. Uh, and then slowly it seems to unwind. I mean, is that a fair way to look at the season, yeah, or is that not a fair so. way to No, I mean, I think, you know, last year, obviously, the hype was in spring training, but they right. started off April and May were lousy, right? and it really wasn't until July. Uh, May was okay. April was awful. May was okay. June was awful. And then finally, by July, they started to pick things up and got themselves back into contention. I don't know. I, I, it, it, the year before that, they made the playoffs. Right. So so this idea of, like, they're always same old, it's right. the same thing. Like, well, I think they hopefully changed some of that narrative two years ago by this group essentially making the playoffs. The new question mark is not can they be a good team. They're a good team. The question is can they be a great team? Can right. they be a better than good team? And I don't know that they've answered that question yet at all. That was Mike Salk, 710 Sports Mike. Thank you for joining us. You got it. And while the Mariners begin playing tomorrow down in Arizona, back here in Seattle tomorrow is opening night for Seattle's opera production of X, the life and time, life and times of Malcolm X, a revival of an opera that is as complex and challenging as the man at its center. Cairo News Radio Heather Bosch reports. With its strong jazz undertones, the music in X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X is intricate, complex, and deliberately improvisational. Composer Anthony Davis tells me, though his opera first debuted in 1986... The idea of what a piece of music is, the fundamental idea, for me, a piece of music is not something fixed, it's something that can transform. And it's perhaps befitting a story of a civil rights icon whose own life changed significantly in his brief 39 years. The opera touches on key moments in his life, family tragedy, crime, and a stint in prison, where Malcolm joined the Nation of Islam and began using X as his last name. He eventually fell out with the nation and was assassinated in 1965. You know, his life and his life's journey is operatic in itself. Bass baritone Kenneth Kellogg portrays Malcolm X in the opera, and he tells me... The score is, it's difficult. It's it's one that captures the complexity of Malcolm X's life. But as an actor, you go in. Like, for me, I love playing those characters that have the various layers of complexity to them. Director Robert O'Hara says there are challenges beyond the score, pointing again to the life it's telling. Every performance, we are killing a black man at the end, and somehow that has to be recognized. A hard truth but he says he's willing to help tell it. Because that's what I do uh, as an artist. I go into places and I interact with humanity and I uh, hold a uh, microscope up to uh, the human condition and sometimes the human condition is ugly. Um, I think the echoes of what Malcolm X stood for reverberated through the Black Lives Matter movement. They reverberated through hip-hop. They reverberated through a lot of the fight of people who have been oppressed. It's always a battle, America. It's a battle to tell our stories and also to be uh, ready to confront the challenges we're going to face in the future. Though Malcolm X died decades ago, these artists tell me his life story remains as relevant as the opera that dares to tell it. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. It's now 7.39 and time for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft, a school bus driver is touching the hearts of strangers after an act of kindness went viral. Larry Farish Jr., or Mr. Larry, as the kids call him, drives buses in Louisville, Kentucky, and recently noticed a first grader named Levi was having kind of a tough morning. Levi said through tears that he 
didn't have any pajamas for pajama day. After Mr. Larry finished his morning routes, he headed to a family dollar store, bought a couple pairs of pajamas, brought them back to the school, and turned Levi's whole day around. Mr. Larry telling ABC News. We can educate and further push our kids in the right direction. Our school staff, our bus drivers, our principals, our teachers, they all go above and beyond doing for our kids every single day. Following Mr. Larry's lead, a local nonprofit is raising money for Levi and his family to go shopping for new clothes. That's our daily dose of kindness. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Mike Lewis filling in for Dave Ross. Now joining us from the G and Ursula show, my friend, hey. G. Scott. You can hear them from uh, uh, 9 a.m. to noon right here on Cairo Radio. G. Scott. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, before I get into the, the combine issue that we're going to be talking about, I have something to relate to you. Mm-hmm. I'm having a the couple weeks ago. I'm having a beer with Danny Westneat, Seattle Times columnist, yeah. and he said his favorite sports radio show ever was your old show, Back from the Past, uh, the Barbershop Show. Yeah, he said by far he and his son. It was like required listening for he and his son to sit together and listen. To that he said is by far his favorite sports radio show ever. Danny Westneat said this. Yes, and I figured I'm getting a chance to pass it along to you. Loved that show. Well, can you, when you talk to him, can you tell him I'm a big fan of his? No, I know. I told I'm him the same. I, I said that you're his. a big fan of his. <laughs> You've got a mutual appreciation wow. society in neither side now. All Love right, let's it. let's get into the combine. So what's going on? Oh wait, wait. You, you have well. All right, you. You're a man of great insight on this stuff, but the uh-huh. offseason has begun. Uh-huh. The NFL combine, or as Danny O'Neill used to call it, the underwear Olympics uh, in Indianapolis. The coaches, the general managers will be in attendance. Apparently, except for one notable exception, the Seahawks. What's going on? They don't need to go. All right. Right now, the most important thing that the Seahawks coaching staff uh, to do right now is to come together and be together. They, j- they were just hired, right? Like, Remember this. These words are used all the time, and I want to really explain it. In your job and where you are in your family, there are systems, right, that happen. But what goes on inside of the house and what inside of the job, that's the culture, right? Right. So right now, the the main focus for the Seahawks staff is to come together and use that time. Here's why they don't need to be at the NFL Combine or the underwear Olympics that somebody <laughs> wants to talk about. Number one, remember this: the Los Angeles Rams they don't go to the uh, combine, right? Right. Starting in 2020, Sean McVay came out and says we don't really need to judge things based on those few days. We judge through analytics. We judge through what we see on film. So there's a lot of things, and, and I think the Rams have been successful, right? So we see arguably what yes, done. absolutely. That's number one. Number two. Here's the things that really happens at the Combine. Probably the most important thing that really happens is we, the fans, get to see who runs fast. Right. Well, the, the NFL has turned it into, like the draft, into must-see viewing, right? It's right. turned it, This is a separate event, even if it doesn't matter on anyone's knowledge about sports from a team standpoint. We get to see them run fast. They, the teams, there's medical that happens. So you got to f- poke and prod these young men to find out who's healthy and who's not uh, injuries that have been lingering. 
Number two, another important thing during this time is right after the NFL Combine, less than 10 days, will be NFL free agency, right? right. So right now, there's a lot of agents that are <laughs> rushing there, right. making tampering deals and talking to those kind of things. That's two. Three, another important time for the NFL Combine are for coaches to meet other coaches so they can build relationships. That's how you try to, hey, listen, if, if things don't work out here, let me get on your staff here. This time. Those things happen. But as far as finding out who the quote-unquote player, the next player is going to be, most teams know who that's going to be. Now, I want to be very clear. What did, How does this... Uh, impact the Seahawks. The Seahawks management, the tr- the uh, scouts in the gym, all, th- that staff will be there, right? They were there at the East-West Shrine game. They have been continuing to do their due diligence. The coach is going. I just don't want anybody to hear and be like, is this a bad thing if the coaches don't go? No, I think it is a great thing to use that time that you could be spent out there inside of the building right there in Renton. That makes complete sense. So last quick question, G. Mm. If you could go, would you go? Absolutely. Is there anything? Absolutely. I was going to try to leave out here without getting to the the real (laughs) reasons why a lot of people like to go to NFL combines. Yeah. I don't want to get in trouble. So how about this? You just keep this between us. All right. It's always a good time in Indianapolis. You understand me? (laughs) There's a lot of good stuff that happens. Now, do me a favor. Don't take my word for it. Look up Jerry Jones, NFL Combine, and look it up for yourself for what happens around (laughs) in the Combine. Don't take my word for it. You know what they say, a lie, a die, but the truth never expires, Sully. Come on. So true. (laughs) All right, then. This is Seattle Morning News, and I'm Mike Lewis in for Dave Ross. Let's take a look at everything being discussed down in Olympia with our state legislative reporter, Matt Markovich. Matt, what are we looking at uh, heading into this weekend? Good morning, Mike. I can't really say I can talk about everything because it's really a lot of stuff going on right Sorry, now. Sorry, Matt. Time. You're on the hook for everything. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. So we got 13 days left in the 60-day session. Like I said, it's crunch time. This is when... The leadership, which is the Democrats in both the chambers, House and the Senate, the leadership is counting votes. What are we going to bring to the floor? And so they're starting to vote now on bills that could make it straight to the governor's desk. But right now we're in a period where they're passing bills, but they're making changes, which means it has to go back to the other chamber. Uh, There are very few bills ready for the governor's signature. For example, here's what happened yesterday. There was a bill that eliminates any restriction preventing unrelated people from living together. Now, the Senate had added a change to a House version that says the only restriction can be for fire and zoning codes that limits the number of people in a house. No longer can a development restrict who lives in a home. Now, the bill passed along party lines with the Democratic majority approving the bill, but now it has to go back to the House because the House needs to approve the Senate changes. And then there was a Senate bill passed, a a House bill increasing the penalties for harassing election officials. Now, it was become a Class C felony and could include prison time. It also allows election workers who are harassed to apply for the address confidentiality program. Now, the bill passed the House, but the Senate made a few changes, so now it has to go back to the House. So, But there were two bills 
that everyone could agree on that are heading to the governor's desk. The state lawmakers passed a bill allowing more cannabis-infused products a person over 21 can buy at any one time when they walk into their favorite pot shop. Now, it means a buyer could walk away with more products, with more THC, the active ingredient in marijuana. And I think, Mike, it may have passed because that would mean more marijuana taxes collected ah, by the state. Ah, there we go. Now we've got an answer. Yeah, yeah. Now, and also state lawmakers have made it easier for police departments to hire more police officers. It used to be any local officer, police officer, had to be a U.S. citizen. Well, both the House and the Senate have agreed and passed a bill that allows people considered legally permanent residents to be police officers and prosecutors. And now that bill heads to the governor. And But one of the more controversial topics, and I heard you do my little story a few minutes ago, is the ban on banning books. Now, the Washington State Senate passed a, a House bill along a party-line vote 29-20 uh, yesterday with the Democratic majority voting in favor. The bill is intended to prevent the banning of books and instructional materials that relate to an individual or group that is a of a protected class. Now, the legislation is in reaction to many states banning materials that relate to the LGBTQ community. Senator Emily uh, Randall, a Democrat from Bremerton, is a member of the LGBTQ caucus. It is so important that we stand up and stand alongside young people who may not feel welcomed in their classrooms or in their school districts or in their communities, but find a welcoming space in a book that reflects them for who they are. So the Senate made changes to the original bill that passed out of the House, again, on along a party line vote, 58-39, all the Democrats for it, all the Republicans against it. That happened on February 10th. Now, the most significant change that the Senate did is it removes the ability to appeal to a school uh, a, a decision by a district superintendent on a book to a local school board. Additionally, any decision by a superintendent may not be reconsidered for a minimum of three years unless there is a substantive substantive change in circumstances determined by the superintendent. Now, the Republicans argue that allowing a district superintendent to be the final decision maker erodes the power of the local school board whose members are elected by the community. Here's Senator uh, Ann Rivers. She's a Republican from Vancouver. This bill truly represents that the legislature is slowly moving school boards towards extinction. Soon we won't need them at all because we, from our position up here, will be making every decision that impacts the school district. Now, when she says up here, she's meaning the legislature and the superintendent of public instruction because the way the bill is written, the superintendent of public instruction who oversees all the school districts in the state has to create the criteria for district superintendents to follow when it comes to banning a book. Now, under this legislation, school districts, chartered schools, state tribal education compact schools would be barred from refusing to approve or prohibit the use of educational materials that involve a protected class. But... That does not override a prohibition if it's there's bias against an individual group in a book. That book can be banned. Here's Tiana Nobles, a Democrat from Lakewood. Uh, she's the senator. She's the Senate sponsor of the House bill. Really important to tell the stories of a diverse community that exists all across the world. Now, Senator Perry Dozer, he's a Republican from Walla Walla. 
He says he's had a problem balancing the books. Where I struggle is the balance of scales with some material that is tipping towards rather graphically or written on the verge of pornographic. That's where I struggle with this. Now, Republicans offered several amendments to restore the local school board decision making, but all of them failed. Democrats you know, doing a voice vote. They all shouted it. No. And, and they lost. So Senator Jim McCune, a Republican from Grant, offered an amendment that would remove all sexually explicit books from uh, school libraries. And these pornographic books and novels have crept into our schools and our libraries. My amendment just says Schools cannot have printed or visual material of dirty sexual talk or pictures of sexual activity in our K-12 schools. Simple amendment. If it was adopted, it would take care of the issue. Well, that amendment was not adopted. So now that because there's changes that the Senate made to the House bill, it now goes back to the House for further discussion, Mike. Uh, So I think the most important question is, uh, is, did his amendment actually use the word dirty? Uh, that's a great question. I'd have to look up the language. I would say yes. Wait, Chris, who is an expert in all things? No, I, I, I just had a clarification because uh, Matt, you lost me just a little bit. You said you could ban a book if it showed a bias toward a protect. So, like a book that uh, shows like the realities of the black experience using the language of the, could someone ban that because it's if, a, if, uh, so if kind if of some, ex- explain that a little bit. I was kind of confused there. Oh, I hate that when I confuse people. Gosh, <laughs> um, um, you know, so they the superintendent can ban a book if the book takes shots at a pro, uh, protected community, a protected uh, it's discriminatory. So in that case, if a book is targeting a specific group and making inflammatory remarks or misstatements, that kind of book can be banned. But a book that talks about a protected class uh, and it's not taking shots at another protected class, that book cannot be banned. This this sounds to me, madam, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like a First Amendment attorney full employment act. Uh, yes. You, yeah, but people are going to say... You're right on, Mike. And you know whether or not this can make it through the legal courts, if someone's going to challenge it on that case, uh, we're going to see. But yes, there's a lot of First Amendment discussion in this. But the 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 the, the bill has been around for a while, and it's been ba- it's been changed quite a bit since its original form. The big difference here it is is that because they took out the ability for the local school board to make the decision, that brought a lot of Democrats on board and they passed it. That was the big decision. So if, if you were, if someone were, you're sitting down at dinner and someone said, what is the most interesting piece of legislation so far moving through the pipeline right now? What would you say the book banning thing is the one that's getting all the attention? Oh, no, it's uh, smelt dipping. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it is. Of course. I should have guessed that. You know, and they're going to charge you 10 bucks to go to the river there and dip your net into and grab some smelt, which has been free for, you know, centuries for Washington families. So So, so this this is really happening. I thought, oh, that's smelt dipping. That's a good one. (laughs) It sounds like it sounds mildly. If you call someone a smelt dipper. 
does that necessarily is that an insult or is that a compliment? No, that's a, you, people know what it is. You'd you know, have to ban that. The pallets there. You got your long. You got your net, and you <laughs> dip in and get your smelt. And the fact that the state wants to charge people and families ten dollars a person now to do this oh, wow. thing that oh, wow. uh, happens, you know, that has just been like free. two weeks out of the year. Yeah. There is no such thing as a free smelt lunch anymore, is there? <laughs> that's right. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.